Hello and welcome to The Flying Frisbee with me, Dominic Frisbee, and today it's my pleasure to welcome to the show a man who was introduced to me by the illustrious comic Simon Evans. He is a private investor, he is a trader, and his name is Danny Solomon. Danny, hello sir, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you very much, Dominic. So uh, we had uh, lunch before before the show began, and um, immediately we started talking about markets and, and we we sort of hit the road running. So that's what we're going to talk about today, markets. And um, the big question I have is, are we in a commodities super cycle or not? Um, difficult to say. I believe that we probably are on uh, taking all things into account. Um I think the world is changing rapidly, uh, especially in regard to what commodities it requires. Um, obviously, the move to electric um, has opened up um, a range of commodities that weren't being used, say, 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Primarily lithium, obviously, for batteries, um, which... I believe will be in a bull market. Uh, it has been in a bull market in 2015, 2016, that sort of period. And then uh, the market went right down. Um, and as you know, it's come right back up again. I know that you don't believe that the lithium market is going to continue to go up. Well, I Here's my thing about lithium is it, it had that bull market 2015, 2016, as you say, then it came off. Then literally from the COVID bottom for about two years, it had a an extraordinary bull market. And it just the price of lithium carbonate kept on going up and up, even when the miners diverged and started coming off. Um, from what I, my understanding of lithium is there's a sort of like the first producers that can get the supply to market there's a sort of arms race going on but the first guy gets it to market will win it's not actually that hard to produce and there's been some change in subsidies change in regulations coming out of china and i i sort of maybe it was about a month or six weeks ago i put a i think lithium has peaked um price out and it does seem to have come off since then in fact since just before but then i've noticed the last few days it's rallied a bit yeah and but my question is, I wonder if the net zero narrative has maybe popped a little bit and people are realising... It probably has. Um, I think that, you know, that that is not as strong a um, thesis as it yeah. was. Um, however, what I do see in the lithium market, which I think is very interesting, is that um, people like Tesla, companies like Tesla, they obviously have to have lithium in order to make their batteries. They um, recently went in with a company in um, Quebec, a lithium miner, Piedmont, I think they're called, um, in order to secure um, resources for their batteries. Um, and there does seem to be quite a lot of um, this type of activity going on in the lithium in in lithium. In fact, I'm in, I, I'm shareholding a company called Lithium Chile which, although it sounds like it's in Chile, is mainly in Argentina. Um, and they had a 19% stakeholder called Chengze um, Lithium from China. Now, interestingly, the Canadian government, for better or for worse, but I think I'll know which side you're on, um, said that Chengze had to divest from Lithium Chile, even though the company was not in Canada, it's listed in Canada, all its production um, is in uh, Argentina, mainly a little bit in Chile. And they made 
they made Changzai divest because they said this is a strategic uh, mineral and that um, they did not want Chinese companies investing in what they said was a Canadian company. I, mean, I must it, say, I'm surprised. Who said that? The Ch- Canadians or the Chinese? No, the Canadians. The Canadian government, they, they've since divested Changzai and another, and another investor has come in. But that's where we're sort of going with lithium. I think I I'm think... surprised because Canada and China are normally pretty tight, and you know because of if you go to Vancouver, there's loads of Chinese there. Obvious reasons: West Coast of China, uh, East Coast of China, West Coast of Canada. So I'm I'm surprised. Yeah, I mean the, the company. I mean I know I've spoken. I know the management. I've met with the management of the company. They were absolutely shocked. I mean this this there were I think six companies, lithium Chile being one of them. I mean when the announcement came out, I think it was in October or November last year. Um, they they couldn't believe what they were hearing. I mean why Surely would China is the biggest buyer of Canadian raw materials? It was exactly. It was it was absolutely shocking and. Um, uh, it didn't actually affect the share price, interestingly, because um, they were. It showed, in a way, that you know the Canadian government considered it to be a strategic um, asset, and therefore it almost looked good for the company that that you know mm-hmm. that what they were holding was was an important reserve. Um, but I think that's where we're going generally with commodities, um, and I think there's going to be what I've noticed is that there, there's going to be a premium on lithium companies that are in the west you know mm. that can't that are that are in especially in america and in and in um and in canada i think that there's you know c- countries are almost it, there's a bifurcation in the world you've got the west um which is really europe america china um canada um australia and japan and maybe korea and the rest of the world now. I mean, when when you hear on the news the rest of the world doesn't like this, they're really talking about, uh, or, or the world doesn't like something. They're really talking about the West. Um, you know, China and Russia have been pushed together by for one reason or another. They're they're bringing with them companies like Brazil. Um, India's probably coming on board as well, um, and you're ha- you're getting this bifurcation in the world. So you're getting two really two separate world economies that are going to protect their own resources. Yeah, I think that resource, not resource nationalisation, but resource, strategic resource, um, I don't even know what the word is, siloing of resources, if you like. That's definitely going to be a big theme. There was a, a interesting document from from um, uh, Christine Lagarde of, the, I, of um, the IMF that was sort of translated by Isabella Kaminska, the former FT journalist, and she was describing that. This sort of strategic mm. who gets what and who owns what. Mm. And, uh, you know, Russia's got the resources. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. And and um, but I think what what the Ukraine war has shown also is that what came out recently, and I believe this is true, was that it, it's very difficult to actually properly sanction countries in terms of resources because there's a there's always a way around it and it came out in the news and I don't know whether you saw this but it sounded like and and, and as I say I, I haven't seen any evidence and I probably won't you probably will be unable to see any evidence but that Ukraine was buying oil from Russia um, during the war yeah recently this came <laughs> out so you're looking at so you're you're seeing this way around the sanctions and 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 it 
what's uh, we the rare earth um, market, which China again has said that they may restrict exports to the West, um, hasn't really had an effect um, on rare earth companies because I think people realise that that it's it's going to be very difficult to enforce these sanctions again. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Europe's buying oil. I understand from Russia through India or through third parties. I read that as well, yeah. Um, and it's it's almost impossible to, to effectively sanction these resources, I think. Um, so I think that's one of the... I think that's something that has come out of this... Um, yeah, governments this, um, might agree one thing, but people on the ground do something quite different. Correct, correct. I think mm. that, that if, if um, oil is, is made available to... To countries, they will buy it wherever it's from. Um, obviously, they can't be seen to be sanction busting, but I think there's quite a lot of that going on. Um, so, rare, let's talk about rare earth, shall we? Next, you know, the strategic, another strategic. In, in other words, you, I think you like. I, I own two lithium companies, by okay. the way. One by accident because it actually started out as a tin company, but right. they found loads of lithium, and it's sort of gradually rebranding as lithium. And then the other, uh, because. It's got a resource, and it's going to be able to agree off-take agreements. Um, so, can I ask the name of the, uh... the the second one? Yeah, Vision Lithium. Okay, and they're based in Canada. Okay, yeah, and yeah. they did a sort of bulk tonnage thing, bulk sample, and it's yeah. put out a good resource, a good uh, PA the other day. And yeah, yeah, um, I'm underwater with it. I bought it on my broker's advice, and it's come off since I bought it. Right. Anyway, those are the two that I own, and 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 the tin mine is Andrada. Right. In, do you know that yeah, one I in have, Namibia? Yeah, I have heard of that. Uh, that's that's uh, that's that, I like that one. Yeah. Okay. Um, tin's another strategic resource, yeah. and um, Myanmar, the Myanmar tins just come offline, like yesterday, uh, and the tin prices should suddenly shot up ten percent. I think Myanmar is like I can't remember the the exact figure, but like twenty percent of the world's tin or something. Um, are you a t- you're not a tin guy? No, I've I've I don't I haven't really looked into tin to be honest. I mean, I it, it I know it's something that um, I probably should have being in the resource market, but it's not it's not something I've looked at in detail. Okay, let's talk one one I don't know anything about rare earth. Yeah, most of it, most of the mining is in China. Certainly, the refining is in China. Yeah, most of it. I mean, there, there's two sorts. There's heavy rare earths, light rare earths. Uh, the heavy rare earths, I think, are more used in um, for magnet technology, which is used a lot in weaponry. Um, and the company that I think is very interesting is Linus Rare Earths, which is based in Australia. They've been producing for a very long time. I believe they're the largest rare earth producers outside of China. Um, and interestingly, the Pentagon has um, done a joint venture with them to build a rare earth um, facility in Texas because they, I think, are worried that if China does restrict rare earth um, exports, they will be unable to make... Uh, the weapons they want to make. Now, um, looking, I understand that each F-35 um, plane requires 400 kilos of rare earths, which... Seems a lot. Yeah, it does seem a lot. I mean, I looked it up on the internet, and it, it it's saying 970 pounds, which, you know, you know is yeah. the, the US. So, I mean, I know they need a lot, and I know that they're very important, and, and China does have a stranglehold on it. There's only one um, rare earth mine in the US called Mountain Pass in California, which is now 
producing it used to belong to a company called molly corp which had a very checkered past i think eventually went bust um probably quite difficult to, to make a to make a rare earth company in the west go bust but i think they managed to do it um and but they they're now producing and and um their shares to have actually gone down since the rumor that china was going to maybe ban rare earth exports so it's not that this this announcement from china hasn't ex- hasn't set the market on fire um linus has gone up somewhat um since then um and their sh- their shares are very interesting their stock has come down a lot um but you would think that if God forbid hostilities did break out between China and America. That would be the first thing the Chinese would do. Um, they're not, I doubt they would allow um, uh, rare earths to be sold to America that um, could help them make weapons. How likely, stroke, inevitable, do you think hostilities between China, you know, that half of the world and this half of the world are? Um, I think that China will... I, th- I, th- I think there will be hostilities, unfortunately. I think that the US has got a lot of bases around that area. They've been building up military bases around that area for several years. There's a film by John Pilger, The Coming War with China, which came out 2017, 2018. He's probably not one of your favourite journalists, but he. I think he's an exceptional journalist. I don't know him. John Pilger, mm. he's an Australian journalist. He's uh, he actually broke the story of um, in Cambodia, Year Zero. He was the first um, journalist on the ground in Phnom Penh when the banknotes were flying around the country, flying around the city, having uh, the, the central bank having been looted by um, by the Khmer Rouge. Uh, he made his name then. And he, he's written some amazing books. He's a, he's a, he's an incredible. He was in Vietnam. I mean, he's one of the journalists that I respect enormously as a truth teller. And this film, The Coming War in China, which was uh, originally shown on ITV, um, has basically set out exactly what has happened since the film was made. Um, he's under no illusions that um, the US is a global hegemon will not accept the rise of a um, of any other um, uh, country that's going to challenge that. Mm-hmm. They just will not have it. I mean, the wolf of its doctrine, which came out in the 90s, specifically states that, that the, U, that the US is the world hegemon. No one will, will challenge it. And if they do, they will probably fight them. Um, now... If you look at, say, Mearsheimer, I don't know if you know John Mearsheimer, he came out with, uh, at, at around the similar time, explaining this, but in terms of the Russia-Ukraine war, saying pretty much what, um, pretty much what Pill just said, that um, the US will not allow Russia to maintain an independent uh, course. So they will fight them through Ukraine, and they'll fight Russia to the last Ukrainian. Now, this was on video. The, it's been watched millions of times on YouTube. He knew exactly what was going to happen, um, and Pilger, I think, knows what's going to happen in terms of, of a conflict with, um, with with China. Yeah. When? I have no idea. What I have no Pilger, idea. Does Pilger say when? Uh, no, um, there's no real time frame. Um, but you look at Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, and I believe McCarthy's visit to Taiwan. Um, you couldn't 
do anything that would wind the Chinese up more than doing what they did there, I don't believe, unless the president visited, but that's not going to happen. Um, there does seem to be a desire to um, force China to make a decision on Taiwan, I believe. Um, I, the problem I, is, like, when you forecast a war between two great superpowers, I mean, sooner or later it's going to happen. Um, but, you know, you kind of, like, at some point in the next hundred years, there's going to be some kind of showdown. It might just be this sort of war by proxy that seems to be going on anyway. Um, but the that kind of prediction is never wrong. Do you know what I mean? Because it's always going to happen at some point. But, I mean, let's say in the next 10 years? Uh, I mean, I, I would have thought so if it's going to happen. I mean, it seems to be building up ahead of steam. I mean, obviously, since Pelosi's visit, the Chinese have... Uh, ramped up um, flights across the, um, the, the the line of demarcation, I believe yeah. it's called, um, and they've held military drills. Um, there's only one way that this is going. There doesn't seem to be any um, attempt, as there is in Ukraine, to, to, to defuse this. Um, you know, in the 70s, when, when there was the Cold War, obviously, there was a word called detente, where there was an attempt to, uh, by serious politicians, to defuse situations that could lead to these wars. Um, but that word just does not exist anymore. No one talks about peace. No one, the Americans have got absolutely no interest in peace in Ukraine, from what I understand. Um, they want to degrade Russia. They want to they fight Russia there and degrade its military. Um, and... As soon as the word peace is brought up, you're a Putin apologist. You know, that's not acceptable. Do you find that? What concerns me is throughout history, war has been used by leaders as a means to deal with domestic problems. So if you're an unpopular leader at home, there's nothing like an overseas war to save your leadership. And, you know, it worked beautifully for Margaret Thatcher, for example, with the Falklands. Um, I mean, it's... It, it's always a bit more nuanced than that, but you know, there's there's many a king or an emperor or whatever who's gone to war overseas in order to dilute a problem at home. And I just see the West mired. It doesn't matter where you are, like mired in this cultural war and division, and and nobody able to get up, get on, and left v right, and you just sort of think the solution for some leader at some point is just going to be the the only way he's going to resolve this is by creating something bigger and I noticed that Macron who is perhaps the most unpopular domestic leader of all of them you know the French are actually rioting he keeps he's suddenly you know Mr Missionary <laughs> off to China and yeah. Russia and brokering a peace in Ukraine and yada yada yeah and you wonder if that that mentality is is going on there yeah I, I have a different view of the culture wars actually I they don't interest me um particularly. Um, I, I know that they do fascinate um, people who are interested in, in politics. I think that they are purely diversionary, I have to be honest. I think a lot of the, um, a lot of the culture war um, stuff is purely to take people's minds off um, what governments don't want people to talk about. And, and you know, we are nearer, there is no question about this, we are nearer a nuclear war 
than we have been probably since 1983 when um, Russia mistook, I think it was called Operation Able Archer, NATO's uh, nuclear war games at the time, for, for an attack, and we did come pretty close then. We are now as close, if not closer, to a nuclear war than we have been since then, definitely. Now, nobody talks about this. It's never mentioned. It's, it's you know, you, you, you almost, you can't talk about it. There's no, um, there's no forum for talking about it. It's, it, it's it, you know, why, why are we determined to um, push, push on Ukraine all the time? Why, I mean, I understand that, that Russia has to be stopped, but... And, and, and I think, and let me just say this outright, the Russian invasion is totally unacceptable. I have to say that. I mean, I, there's no question that what Putin did is utterly wrong, unacceptable. And, um, and you know, it, but, but, what, but what you don't hear in the West is the backstory to Ukraine since 2014. And since 2014 to the start of the war... 14,000 ethnic Russians were killed in the Donbass by Ukrainians. Um, it's a civil war. The people in the Donbass, are you, that's part of Ukraine. Um, they were killed by Ukrainians. Um, this, is, this is a Ukrainian civil war at the end of the day. We are involving ourselves in, in that. Mm. Um, should we be? Uh, and people say, "Look, you know, next stop Poland." I don't see that because I don't see eth- I don't see Putin going. Well, there's ethnic Russians in Warsaw. I don't see that. This is Crimea is ethnically Russian. The Donbass is ethnically Russian. That we are we are we are involving ourselves in what is essentially a Ukrainian civil war. I believe. Hmm. I know okay. we've drifted way we have, we have, off, we've, but, we've, we've, but, this, but this, is, this is on my mind. And, and yeah. I'm, I, I really worry about where this now ends. I, this is w- one of the reasons why I always like talking to investors. Because what you tend to find with investors is that in order to make the decisions they make about where to put their money, they tend to be fairly well read on a wide variety of subjects. Now, you might disagree with their opinions on certain subjects, but you tend to find with investors, they know what's going on here. They know they tend to be politically informed. Uh, they just tend to know about a wide variety of things. Um, so, yeah, I just thought I'd say that. But, I mean, I guess war is <laughs> it's good for commodities. Yeah, it's good for gold. Where I- do you stand on uranium? Uranium, um, I think, is going to be in a bull market. I'm not a massive bull. I think it's an interesting area. I, I do have um, investments in uh, in yellow cake, which just holds uranium. It takes it off yeah. the market, and um, which I think is an interesting um, policy when there's a shortage or a, there's going to be a, a supply and demand imbalance. Um, Sprott does a similar thing with silver. You know, if you take mm. this off the market, it will not be available um, for for the demand side. Mm. Um, and um, however, there is a downside to it because at some point, if the uranium price goes through the roof, which it could do in the next five years, there's a chance of that. Then the governments will not allow companies like, say, Yellow Cake. I would have thought 
to be able to do what they're doing. It will then become a strategic asset mm-hmm. and they'll have to release their, their, their uranium onto the market. But they'll um, compensate them for it, sure. Yeah, they'd compensate, but where, sure. But I mean, you know, as an investor, that's something that's at the back From of the your point. mind. I mean, whether they'd compensate them at the, at, you know, the, at the price of uranium mm-hmm. at the time, who knows? I just, the problem I have with uranium is there's quite a few uranium companies and there's uranium companies with genuine assets, you know, genuine deposits. But they're so far from being a mine. They're like 20 years from being a mine, even having proven up these deposits, that realistically we're not going to see. So, you know, the uranium price goes up, so the miners go up concomitantly, but they shouldn't necessarily because I guess the value of their deposit goes up because of the uranium in the ground. But at the same time, they're not actually going to be any more profitable because they're so far from production. And part of the reason... Well, a lot of the reason they're so far from production is just the sheer regulation of the cost of government involved in building a uranium mine. It fills people with terror. But there are other reasons as well. And so that's why I tend to steer clear of uranium mining companies. There's Cameco. Yeah. But then Cameco has its, its own problems. And you're taking on a lot of operational risk. So the solution is to own things like Yellow Cake yeah. or the Uranium Participation Court with the, the yeah. Toronto equivalent. Yeah. But then... You know, it doesn't go up that much. No, I'm and you're just literally you're not speculating on human endeavour. You're speculating on 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 asset on asset price of appreciation. Yeah, no, you are. I, I totally agree with what you're saying about um, uranium mining companies or pre-production mining mm. companies. Um, I'm involved in one called F3 in um, it's in the Athabasca Basin, which is on the Saskatchewan uh, border with um, the other huge uh, uh, Alberta. Oh, okay. Alberta. So it's it's a huge um, uranium mining uh, area, um, and F3 Uranium were have a big holding there. Their shares were about eight cents. This was. Um, the start of this year, they very cleverly um, flew a plane extremely low over the areas that they were interested in with Geiger counters and equipment, mm. and they found an enormous. Um, and in, they think it's, it looks like an, a proper mine. An enormous amount of uranium is coming up on their testing equipment, um, and they even used the um, the expression which I thought was. Which I thought was brilliant in their um, in one of their press releases, which was off the charts. Which I think actually comes from that uh, from, from from that uh, type of um, testing off the Geiger counter charts, if mm. you like. Um, and their shares have just gone absolutely mad. I, di- I, I bought. I didn't buy them at eight. I have to say, I was severely underwater yeah. <laughs> when they went there. But um, yeah, I mean, their shares went to fifty. 50 cents they're back down to 35 but they do have a mind but what you're saying is absolutely true and that is it takes years to develop this i mean if you find a rare toad or something you know you you know you you push back uh, i don't know how many years i mean it's it's and this is you know it's in canada so they you know they're they, the restrictions are you know, there's an enormous amount of um of red tape restrictions getting these mines online but i do like I do like these smaller companies because you can, you know, if they do have a find and they do look like they've got something, you know, they become, their shares do go up over time, even though they're not making a profit and even though, yeah. Um, but, you, uh, you know, it's not something that widows and orphans want to get involved with, to be honest. I, um, 
quite like. I mean, I do think it's a huge problem solving uranium on so many different levels. And and uh, I noticed that Jeremy Hunt or someone in the UK government has reclassified uh, nuclear as green. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> but uh, I, I think in the in the ongoing you know move away from fossil fuels, uranium is obviously particularly with the electrification of everything. Uranium has to play a role yeah and these small modular reactors yeah seem to be a huge problem solver yeah um because there isn't the yeah the the problem that you have building it you know it's proven technology with subs that have been just a submarine sail but subs that have been traveling around uk water since forever nuclear subs and and a, a small modular reactor would be not too dissimilar in size to a to a UK sub, I gather, and and it would like one mod, small modular reactor the size would be enough to do a whole county, and but then that then the problem is which companies have the wherewithal to supply them, and in this new geopolitical landscape in which we find ourselves, suddenly Chinese companies offering to build British infrastructure with something as sensitive as 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 power it's unlikely you know you're going to yeah. let a chinese company yeah, do yeah, it they tried to with huawei but then they went the other direction yeah um so all this leads to rolls royce exactly what i was going to say it's rolls royce <laughs> that are the ones that look like they've got these small these small modular reactors yeah i mean you, you're not going to have a lot of companies building these they're pretty specific and they're you know i think there's huge barriers to entry i think rolls royce might have this market sewn up in the uk yeah yeah yeah. But the problem is the, the other baggage that Rolls-Royce carries and it's not a pure play and all the rest of it. Yeah. And I think Rolls-Royce is now between 140 and 150, something yeah. like that. Having been at this level, then it went back to about a pound or something and then went back up again. But yeah, I mean, do you are you a great studier of accounts and books and debt and all this kind of thing? Do you is what Rolls Royce is going to get from the small modular reactors enough to offset their other problems? I and don't know. I'm not a big reader of accounts. Um, I do talk to people that are, but I'm not. Um, I like themes. I like stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think where to come back to what you said originally, where nuclear power is going to be important is the base load. You cannot run an economy on wind. I mean, last summer or, or even solar, you know, you look at last summer, there's a company called Orsted in who are the biggest wind turbine manufacturers in Denmark. They had a they had a uh, in Europe. It was not very windy last um, summer. You know, and therefore the amount of electricity that was created was not what they thought it should be. You can't run economies on whether it's going to be windy or not, um, or sunny. You can get some power from that, I believe, but you've got to have a base load you know for a fact you're going to get. Um, otherwise, you're literally putting your finger you're putting your finger up in the wind because you know yeah. you don't know. Um, that's why I think nuclear will become important because. You, there is no there is no substitute for this base load and knowing how much you're going to get. Yeah, it's. I mean, it is important, but there's the problem is it's very hard to find a way to play it. What the the nuclear? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We all know it's coming, but it's just hard to find yeah. the right vehicle for um, it. The uranium. I mean, as we've you know as we've discussed the the maybe through the uranium price and companies yeah. like Yellowcake who just benefit from from the price and their shares sort of track it you do mm. get a little then the asset value's fallen quite a bit below the price of uranium but it will catch up and that's that might be the purest play on this there's an idea called luxury opinions which is um 
espoused by a couple of guys, uh, Christian Nemitz of the IEA, and there's a guy, a writer called Rob Henderson in America, who came from a very poor uh, background, and he went to Harvard or one of the one of the big universities there, and noticed that your opinion, you don't get judged on your car or your nice clothes anymore in the way that maybe we did 20 or 30 years ago your opinions are what gives you status and there are luxury opinions that rich people can afford to have Uh, so you know you can be like massively pro-immigration but you know the the immigration doesn't necessarily affect you personally because the immigrants don't live where you live for example or you can be massively pro some socialistic thing because it it doesn't affect you so there's this idea of luxury opinions i think wind power is the sort of energy equivalent of luxury opinions yeah, yeah. you know people like to say oh i'm a big yeah big, you know i'm a big believer in wind power but you know it sounds good and it, it should be good um but you know we've got to run a huge economy here and we can't do that you know on luxury opinions if you like um I don't know. I'm no expert on energy, but I do know that you've got to you've got to have a base load that you know is going to happen. You can't have a a non-windy summer and tell people, yeah. I'm sorry, there's a power cut tonight. It wasn't wasn't windy enough on the west coast, or there wasn't enough sun in in Suffolk. You know, this 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 you can't. Yeah. It's not going to work. But yeah, I do understand. Just to come to there's opinion, also there's also the hypocrisy of the metal required to build the wind turbine, the yeah. carbon neutrality of it, the damage. To to the yeah. environment, the damage to birds, the damage to the beauty of the environment. There's a lot of yeah, there there's a lot of dodgy do- stuff. Yeah, there is a lot of do- like these EV cars. I mean, you yeah. know, the, the, what it takes to build them. I think that's coming home to roost somewhere. Yeah. And what you said earlier, you know, is this this whole um, you know green issue beginning to turn? And I think people do. Hundred percent, realize- it is. It was uh, it was untouchable ten years ago. Yeah. And now people are pushing uh, back against. It. I like think the NHS, once the facts yeah. are known, you know what it takes to build one of these cars. You know, people are a little less. Um, uh, Four times as much metal yeah. in an electric car yeah. as in a. In yeah. A- and, and I still, need... I still don't understand how keeping the car you already have is less environmentally friendly than buying a brand new one with all the shiny metal and everything that's, that's involved in getting a new car to market. Well, I totally agree. And I had a, a diesel car which from 2008, which the government told me to buy because it was going to be the greenest. And then 10 years later, they told me I had to get rid of it because as a ULES. The same's coming with EVs. I, 100% same's um, coming. There's, there'll be a there'll be some scandal in five or ten years time, yeah. and they'll backtrack on it and they'll tax it, and everyone will be caught in the EV thing. Yeah, absolutely. 100% it's I, I mean, I, I totally even agree. more inevitable than war with China. <laughs> well, <laughs> I hope that is the case, and I, yeah. I very much hope I'm wrong. I mean, I'm not. I'm not. You know, I don't want to be some Cassandra sitting here going. You know, I think there's going to be some mighty old war, but it does. You know, I. I it does. It worries me. I've got children, and I do not want to see what I think might be coming down the road and and and, and it does it that does worry me let's talk about gold and silver yeah what do you think well the central banks of the world bought more gold last year than they have done since 1967 um I believe there's a reason for that um and, I and mostly Asian banks mostly Asian banks um once the US uh, sanctioned uh, the Russian central bank and their dollar and all their dollar holdings. Um, I think the writing was on the wall in terms of um, the dollar beginning to fall, which it has done last year. 
um, and for people to say, I want an alternative to dollars. And the yuan is not going to be a global currency in the next few years. It's just not that I just don't see that happening. It doesn't have, um, as you, as we discussed at lunch, I'm not even sure you can have a yuan account in the, you know, yeah. people just, it's, it's not a currency that, that I, uh, that, that's, that, that people can hold. Um, and I do believe that gold is something that investors in this time of real geopolitical uncertainty have you know are beginning to look seriously at and and I think gold will do very well if you look where it is in 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 you know everyone starts talking about gold in in um in dollars now interestingly gold is dollars the is one of the few currencies that gold has not made an all time high in in the last well it has in the last year or so but but continually making all time mm-hmm. highs i mean you look at it in in um in sterling now it's sixteen hundred pounds an ounce breeze through the 1500s 1570 was the was the recent high it it, it it's you know it's it's going to be what people may want to save in especially with inflation rates where they are i mean you know the uk inflation rate came out today it's 10.1 percent unbelievable and what are interest rates three or four percent yeah i mean you know <laughs> Why wouldn't you look at something else? I mean, that would be my question. I mean, why would you want to put money in the bank and see it basically lose 10% of its purchasing power probably within a year? I mean, that's 10%. Yeah, it's temporary. Inflation's temporary, Danny. You're not oh, yeah, no. Um, transitory. 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 <laughs> I mean, to come on to the Fed, I mean, now we're talking about them. They, whatever they say will be wrong. I mean, uh, uh, just in terms of I where we Bailey's are with them. I think even more reliable than the Fed in that regard. Who, who is? Andrew Bailey. Yeah, I mean, they just really... I mean, transitory inflation, obviously nonsense. They're now talking about a mild recession. Now, I will tell you one thing. There may not be a recession. There may be a massive recession. But there will not be a mild recession because that's what the Fed have forecast. So I don't know whether there will be one or there won't be one, but there will not be a mild one because they, um, they've got a track record. They just get absolutely everything wrong. I mean, it's incredible, these central bankers. Um, and meanwhile, as you said before, to come back to gold, eastern central banks are buying gold. I don't believe they're making a mistake. I, I think that they are the ones that know what's coming. They obviously now have um, the BRICS. They have the, the, the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Mm. They're in the process of, um, of, of forming a new currency. I mean, th- th- there's not much doubt about that. Mm-hmm. They, they, you know, they're not saying we're, not, we're going to de-dollarize, but we're not, we, don't know what's yeah. go- we don't know what's coming. You know, they're not, they're not stupid, these people. The, 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 um, the thing about a new currency is people seem to think it's something you can switch on tomorrow. Yeah. And I guess with something like a cryptocurrency, you can do that. You yeah. can design one fairly quickly and, and, and get it to market. The, the problem is the infrastructure around the new currency, the banking, the psychology of people, day-to-day usage and so on. It's, it's not something that you can just switch on. And the fact that this de-dollarization, you know, pro-goldification seems to be taking so long, it could be a sign that it's not happening, but it could be a sign that they're just taking it in baby steps. Um, What I find quite interesting is the fact that central bank holdings, it's not just the fact that central banks have been buying large amounts, is if you look at central bank holdings relative to 
uh, other assets relative to dollars and so on, they have in the last couple of years turned up. And that's the first time that's happened since many decades. So even though central banks have been net buyers since 2008, I think was when the point they stopped being net sellers and became net buyers, it's the percentage of their holdings relative to other assets that is really telling and that's turned up. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I think that the, the, the Chinese are letting their treasuries expire. They're not buying new ones. They're not dumping treasuries because obviously that will put the price down and they still own mm-hmm. billions of dollars worth of them. But they see the writing on the wall. And if you look at China... The treasury holdings are down between 5 and 10% from the all-time high. Yeah, which is significant. It's yeah. not massive, but they obviously need to also... They have... They are the biggest holders of treasuries in the world. They don't want that market to, um, you know, they don't want to sell so much into that market that um, they put the price down. Like They don't want to buy so much gold that they put the price up either. Um, But I think the gold discovery price is a completely, I think that is an issue in itself. And, you know, there have been, as as I'm sure you're aware, uh, the the bullion banks um hold massive short positions in gold in the in, in on comex in the gold market the silver market and there are lots of um precious metal analysts who say look nothing's really going to happen until those bullion banks decide it's going to happen i mean especially in the silver market which is a very small market but you now you day trade gold and silver yeah or gold yeah um yeah so you're staring at charts all yeah. the time do you have an eventual target for gold? No, but I'll tell you what I do see, and not so much now, but in the last 10 years, huge selling of gold at the most illiquid times in Asian trading at 3am in the morning. You know, this, in order to get the price down. Yeah, but that could be a hedge fund. That could be a hedge fund. It's unlikely. Um, these bullion banks, you know, they, they especially... I mean, if you look at the silver price, it's half... It's basically half of where it was when he, from its all-time high. Yeah. Um, it has reached 50. It was 50 uh, bucks yeah. April April 2011, and now it's 25. It's exactly Does half. this seem right to you? I mean, in today's it's market? It's silver. It's silver, but you look at silver as well. What's interesting about silver is it, it, in fault, it's used in photo, photovoltaic, yeah. um, in the production of, of um, uh, solar panels. You would have thought that alone would have would would push the price up, and it's not only a monetary metal. I mean, I, I it's d- not a monetary metal. It used to be. It isn't anymore. And that's oh. the problem that silver has. And and you know, it's an industrial metal. It's produces a byproduct of mining other stuff. The mining companies that produce, like I think, the world's biggest silver producer is BHP, or it was a few years ago. And it's it's such a small portion of what it makes elsewhere. It just when it's, it has it, it just offloads it. Yeah. It's. I, I, I just think we. Uh, because of silver's historical role of money, and in our psyche it has a role of money, but it hasn't had that role in England. It hasn't had that role for you know hundreds of years. It has in China, interestingly. Yes, enough. well, and I know the words silver and money are interchangeable in whatever it is, a hundred different languages around the world. I, I know, I literally, I was the most ardent silver bug. Yeah. And but I just go. Just don't buy the money in silver is made selling it. Yeah, no, <laughs> I agree. It. I mean, that's where you know that's where you make the money. Is shorting these? Is, yeah. is shorting these? I mean, when it gets to thirty, if you shorted silver every time it got to thirty dollars an ounce, you'd have you'd yeah. made a lot of money. At the moment, if you short it every time it gets to twenty five dollars an ounce, you'd be making money as well. I mean, it has gone above that recently, interestingly. But I just think to come back to the precious metals that 
we could be at the start of quite a big bull run. I really do. And interestingly, I do think that silver could, for once, um, live up to its hype and, and do something. But again, you know... At pe- some point, it will go to $50. Yeah. And if it ever goes through to $50, it will go to $200 or something stupid. Yeah, I think that's probably but, right. But... but and and you know if you, if the, the historical average is fifteen to one, and so if there were fifteen ounces of and the, you know the gold price is two thousand, then the silver price should be, what should this, I can't even do the maths. Yeah, uh, a lot in the hundreds. Yeah, is what if if it returned yeah. to historical average. But but um, it's silver. Yeah, no, exactly, and it's it's an enigma, and no one will no one will be able to get their head around that market. It's very difficult. Copper, base metals? Yeah, um, I'm no expert on copper. Um, obviously, Dr. Copper, when things, when, when the world economy looks like it's booming and people are building, you know, they need copper for every single um, electrical wiring that is produced. So, uh, but whether, I, again, it all comes back to how much supply is on the market. Um, I don't know enough about copper to really... To, to, to know but I do believe I mean to just to come back to where we were I think the IMF have said this that we could be on the brink of a of a sort of global downturn I think that I think there has to be something in the pipeline you don't have um these sort of rate rises from virtually 0% up to what 4 or 5% without there being a recession um now Traditionally, it's taken 12 to 18 months for uh, rate rises to filter into economies. Mm-hmm. We haven't reached that point yet. Um, I think America, the US, I just don't think that they're going to get away without having a recession. I don't think we're going to get away without having a recession either. Um, I, I mean, I look at my electricity bills and I just think, well, I'm not going to, I'm just not going to go on that holiday. I would have done, you know, two years mm. ago when, you know, people over the country are in the same position as me you know they're looking and thinking i'm spending so much on energy food i don't have the disposable income that i had say two years ago no before i've got to cut back on something um and i think people have less they have less purchasing power and and that will filter down eventually and I think that there will be recessions on the back of this inflation I just don't see how we're going to get away with it you say that you go out in London on a Saturday night it's rammed unbelievable I was out yesterday in um, Covent Garden with a friend we went to um, uh, um, one of the big curry houses at lunchtime couldn't get in I mean all the West End is packed out and yeah I mean we said exactly that Mm -hmm. and that's on a and that was on a, a Tuesday lunchtime, <laughs> Saturday night. So you day trade the S and P five hundred yeah. a lot. So you're presumably looking at day charts, weekly charts, yeah. monthly charts. Yeah. Do you have a Do you have an outlook there? Yeah, I do. I think that um, interestingly, the Silvergate Bank bankruptcy mm-hmm. happened on the same day as the Bear Stearns bankruptcy in two thousand. On the same weekend as the Bear Stearns oh, right. bankruptcy in two thousand and eight. Bear with me on this one. After Bear Stearns went bankrupt in 2008, people were going, oh, that's, you know, that's not great. The S&P 500 went up 14.5% after that, before it crashed. Now, we are seeing pretty similar chart patterns now to, to 2008. Um, obviously, Silvergate 
isn't Bear Stearns, but it was a big bank. Um, S&P going up. Now, from what I understand, the markets, that market really is dependent on liquidity. Um, and when Silvergate went bankrupt and the banks began to wobble, there's liquidity being put into these markets at the moment. There's no question about that. I mean, there's huge, apart from the fact that there's huge short positions on at the moment um, from hedge, hedge funds, there are short squeezes. It's, you know, it's, it's pretty similar to 2008, I believe. It's not the same because nothing is ever the same. But we are, I think, going to be looking at the second half of this year I don't think is going to be good for stock markets. I mean, they say sell in May and go away. I just see at the moment it looking fairly toppish. Um, since October last year, when the rally started, it's been, you know, people has caught, it's caught virtually everyone out. I mean, nobody thought that there would be a rally back up to 4,200 in the S&P after going to something like 3,500. Um but that, I think, this year, I think that they're going to find out that that there's, um, you know, bear markets might long, last a little bit longer than than from January last year until whenever it was in the nine or ten months. I, I just think that this is going to be looked upon maybe as a big bear market rally or even a double top in the S and P, which got to forty, it got to forty eight hundred. It's now at forty one and a half. Um, it probably won't get up to forty eight hundred, but I can see it, it testing. I can see it retesting those lows that it made last year. Yeah. Huh. Um, now you were for many years uh, involved in the property market in London and to the rest of the extent the UK, and um, you like we've grown up. We're kind of similar age. I'm I'm fifty three. I'm guessing you're mid fifties something, maybe a bit more. Fifty seven. Fifty seven. And so we've seen, you know, you can probably remember the property crash of 89 to 94, the property crash, if you can call it a crash in 2008. Um, But basically, property has been the vehicle by which ordinary people have been able to get exposure to the incredible money supply growth of the last 30 or 40 years. So wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a currency that kept its purchasing power and you could save your salary in this money and it kept its purchasing power and yada, yada. Mm. But we don't have that money. We have money that loses 10, 15% of its purchasing power every year. So, and you look at new money supply growth and then, and you look at mortgages and you look at the, the price, like property prices reflect new money supply growth. So they have been the means by which ordinary people have... They've been everyone's hedge. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think most people understand that. They they just think that they brought their house and they were very clever because they bought well and it went up in value. Don't we all think that when yeah. we do well? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, property prices reflect money supply growth. And that is why they have been so immune, particularly in London, to downturns, because money supply keeps on growing. Mm. Um, where do you see property markets going? Are you bearish? Are you bullish? I know you're mostly out of it now. I think you are compared to where you were once upon a time. Yeah. Do you agree with my narrative about property as well? Yeah, I do. I I think you've got to split it really between commercial and residential. I think that what you're saying applies to people who bought houses, residential Mm -hmm. properties. 
I think the commercial property market is in for a bit of a rough time. I mean, you've got um, some of these funds, BlackRock, for example, gated commercial property redemptions, as of M&G, and some of their open-ended funds, not in all of them, but it's not a good sign. Um, you've got negative growth in commercial property. Offices, because of um, work from home, um, I think the amount of demand is falling um and i think that there is quite a lot of supply if you in fact if you look at, at the um the american or, or the new york office market there could be a real crash in commercial commercial property yeah i think the offices i keep are, reading this on all my whatsapp chat groups they they particularly san francisco is another one yeah they haven't just not filled up no I mean, people, it's changed. You see, I talk... It's changed culture. Yeah, it's it? changed the culture, especially young people. They just, you know, they work from home. They can sit with their computer. They don't see any need for an office. Yeah, my son's 22. He's just about to leave university. He wants to be a digital nomad. He's got yeah. no interest in going and... But people just not, in, you know, why should I sit in a place with other people yeah. when I can do it, you know, in Costa Rica or something, yeah. you know, and work on the same hours as they do in America? This is the way young people think. I don't blame them. Um, we're used to offices, you know, I used to mm. work in one, I don't know whether you did, but we're, it's just, it's just our generation. And I think the young generation, they, uh, I think the, the COVID lockdowns have exacerbated that. And, and I think that, you know, there's going to be a real problem. And I think that if you look yeah, today, remotism is, they went to school, their schools were remote, yeah. their universities were yeah. remote. Yeah. And that's the way it's going. If you look at Morgan Stanley, they came out with um, some figures and they looked all right. And But once people really delved into them, it looks like their commercial property lending book is looking very, very bad indeed. Um, and they came out and said, we, you know, we are worried. Um, and things like ULES is not going to help? No, just I mean... congestion charge, just the sheer cost of... Commuting. I mean, I ride a motorbike. I tried to get into Covent Garden yesterday. There is almost no way of getting of driving from where I came from, North London, into Covent Garden. I mean, I must. God knows how many tickets I'm going to get from you know going down roads that I'm not supposed to on my bike. But it's unbelievable. I mean, it's almost like they let you drive on some roads and the rest of them are shut in London. I mean, they're just endless. I mean, I don't understand. Do you pay Ules for a bike? No. Would no, you, you pay Ules pay... for an old bike? No, you don't pay Ules or congestion charge on a motorbike. You don't pay anything at all. Um, I mean, the congestion charge, yeah. I mean, that's... I mean, I, I, it's 14 quid a day. Ules, 14 quid a day to drive your car. It's absolutely Imagine outrageous. if you're an old lady or something. It, it's, it's not. It's just... I, I, I don't... I mean, I, I don't... Just won't pay the um, congestion charge if I, unless I really have to. I just think it's, it's a complete con, and I and I go in on my bike. And if I go in, it's just, it's worth me taking a minicab from North London and not paying if you know and not paying the congestion charge. It doesn't keep cars off the roads. It just means I'm going in a different car. Yeah, and not pay the congestion charge. But you you're going to pay. So you pay fourteen quid to go in your car to the shops, if uh, if Ules has his way, I, in your old car. Yeah. And and it's the poor, by the way, who don't upgrade their cars because they can't afford to. So you want to pay fourteen quid to go to the shops in your car? You go, I'm not going to pay the fourteen quid. It's another reason to use Amazon, but that affects the shop, yeah. which affects commercial property. Yeah. Well, coming back to commercial property, I mean, you look at high streets. We've all walked up the high streets. I mean, you know, even Hampstead, where I uh, I have an office, 
you've got shops shutting there that you know you would never you, you, five years ago or ten years ago it was thriving that one out of three or four shops is now shut in Hampstead really yeah I mean this is this is a serious problem what's one out of three or four shops in Ham- yeah one out of four I would say in Hampstead what, in Shishi in the nice Hampstead town centre yeah they're completely it's it, it's it's really beginning to show I mean you've got obviously the banks have left I mean you've got a massive NatWest Never, I mean, you know, it's never been um, relet after it was vacated a year ago, and you have a lot of vacancies in Hampstead on the main, you know, on 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 the main part of of Hampstead, um, which you would never saw ten years ago, um, and and you know, the internet's decimated the the retail business absolutely. The only commercial property that's done really well are the big box warehouses, well located, where because. You know, it, companies need um, somewhere to store mm-hmm. stuff before they ship it out, basically. Um, mm-hmm. And these big box warehouses in uh, the, you know, and and the, the, the really, if you go up the M1 just before you get to the M6 junction, you've got the huge Amazon one, which is the biggest building I've ever seen in my life. Um, and you've got, you know, you've got all these massive warehouses up there, um, and. Um, they go for serious money, you know. The yields on them. They used to be. I mean, when I was working in the nineties, they were the sort of the 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 warehousing with the sort of nine ten percent rubbish. And now it's you know you get Amazon in a warehouse, and you know this is serious yields now you're paying for that. You know four or five percent, and these things have have have. have that's where the people have made a lot of money out of yeah. commercial property. Um, but that's the same. That's where the money that would have gone into the high streets gone. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Danny, as we close, uh, I know you're a Chelsea fan. I am. And you wanted uh, to have a rant. I do. And so my son's a Chelsea fan. I do. I am absolutely flabbergasted with what was going on at my club. I appreciate that, you know, Abramovich was unable to... I understand the sanctions. I don't have a problem with that. I do have a problem, though, with this... Uh, Clear Lake Capital coming in, paying, I can't even remember how it was, three and a half billion, some billion, billions anyway, on an asset. Immediately they come in, the the expertise at Chelsea, which centred around Petr Cech and Marina Granitskovnaya, they're gone immediately. So that's your, that's, they, everyone at Chelsea knew they were the real brains, right? They, they're gone straight away. You think, right, they might replace them with some more expertise. Nothing. There has no replacement for the expertise behind the scenes at Chelsea. It was just Bowley came in with his mate and goes, oh, I'm American, I don't know what I'm doing, I'll, I'll be to run this. You know, how much different can it be from, from owning the Dodgers, say? The guy has made catastrophic decision after catastrophic decision. Um, we are now looking like a real second-rate Premier League team. I mean, I go, I've go. i got a season ticket at Chelsea. I, I missed the game at the weekend. I can't remember the last time I saw us score a goal at, at Stamford Bridge, never alone get a point. It is just absolutely... This time last year, we were world club champions. Yeah, Tuchel, he was a good manager. Tuchel was a legend. He got... I mean, who, another would, ca- who would sack Tuchel? Another catastrophic... I can understand, Abramovich was too... Yeah. He he wielded the knife, but there was always another guy, great guy, to come in. Correct. That, and, I mean, I'll, I'll, I mean... I shouldn't say this, but I will. I had so little faith 
in the owners of this football club. I had six quid left in my betting account at the start of the season. And I'm not proud about this. And if any Chelsea fans are listening, it was a joke. It's six quid, right? And I don't hope it happens. And it won't happen. And it's not going to happen. But I had six quid on Chelsea to get relegated at 2,500 to one. Now, that, that, is, that is just a bit of a laugh. Um, because I did it because it was so obvious that these people have got no idea what they're doing. And it is so frustrating to see my beloved club who I've supported. I went to my first game in, I think, 1971. I was definitely at the League Cup final in 1972 because I cried when we lost to Stoke and my dad said we would win. My dad is a Middlesbrough fan and he said, don't worry, son, you'll be back at Wembley, you'll win a final. 25 years later, we were back at Wembley, we did win a final and it was against his team, Middlesbrough. But anyway, <laughs> um, and I'm just I'm just so upset about what's going on there and, and, and having to watch really bad football um who spends 600 million pounds and does not buy a striker i mean who how can yeah, how can you do that nuts. you're buying is nuts i i grew up i grew up in chelsea and i i grew up well my dad lived in fulham my mum lived in chelsea but i used to go to chelsea i think the first game of football i ever went to see was chelsea and uh chelsea against liverpool and peter barota yeah great him? goalie and he had he had like his one brilliant game yeah, against, yeah. against Liverpool. He beat Liverpool. I was absolutely heartbroken. But um, and but you weren't a, you were sort of quite a glamorous club. And but you yeah. were up and down from the first and, yeah, first yeah, and second division times, at that yeah, time. Yeah. This would be um, early to mid nineteen eighties. Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, and then I think Kerry Dixon came yeah. along, and he was Speedy and Dixon, yeah. and Nevin. Yeah, and uh, you were sort of glamorous club, and then suddenly. Something happened in the 90s, Matthew Harding, Glenn Hoddle, yep. all that. You yep. had the Glenn Hoddle and the Matthew Harding money and yep. suddenly Chelsea were playing. And then they just seemed to have had more and more capital come in. And then Abramovich, I remember when Abramovich bought you, I thought my friend was joking when he told me about this Russian billionaire yeah. who was buying Chelsea. But yeah, I mean, I watched you last night. You played Real Madrid last night. I actually thought you were good. First half we were good, I have to say, but, we, we, but we cannot score a goal. I know, but you had two or three chances. Yeah. Uh, Kante had a chance. Yeah. The left back, Cucurella, yeah. should have Cucurella. scored. Yeah. But then, and and my son was just screaming, "Get out, strikers on! We've got to have the." But then, as soon as you put the strikers on, you couldn't get the ball. No, I mean, it so was, at least yeah. you had you controlled the game the way. I I thought you played well. We did. We, we, there was a good atmosphere. I mean, it has been awful at Stamford Bridge, obviously, with the you know the lack of goals, the lack of just anything going on really. But there was a good atmosphere. I've had, you know, and people say. You know the chances fell to Kanté and Cucurella. It sort of sums us up. You want, you know, you want the chance. And then meanwhile, halfway through the the first half or whatever, it comes up on the scoreboard. Guess who scores? Giroud, another yeah. striker we got rid of. And we just go Tammy Abraham, Giroud. These strikers that we, you know, why didn't we keep? You know, we we we've ended up with nobody. I mean, what happened to Lukaku? I mean, he obviously just wasn't interested, but. You know, we've had, we we do have a problem. He'll with... be playing. Will he be playing for Inter in the in the Champions League tonight? I don't know. I think he will be actually. Yeah, apparently he's been appalling. They don't <laughs> oh, okay. want him either. Apparently he'll be back at Chelsea next season. I mean, we should make him come back. We're still paying him. I mean, he's 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 on loan. But whether he wants to perform, I mean, again, look at Aubameyang. And when we signed him, what happened to him? I mean, he's not even. He's just not, he's not, he's, you know, we don't even see him. We don't even, he never turns up. Why, why isn't he playing? He's a centre forward. Yeah. I don't, I don't understand what's going on. I feel sorry for Lampard. I mean, he's been dealt a very, you know, he's been dealt a really difficult hand here. And, but, you know, I, I really, really worry about 
long-term Chelsea now. I mean, you spend six hundred million on the sort of they're going to go. Could they go bust? I think they could. I mean, I hate to say that, but I don't see how you spend that sort of money. If we don't get back into the Champions League, I don't understand what, how we're going to. You know, what do they do? Do they double down? Do they buy more strike? I don't understand what they're going to do. So, what I'm taking out of this uh, interview, Danny, is long gold, yeah. short Chelsea. <laughs> I wished it was. I wished it was long Chelsea and long gold, but um, yeah, I think that might be a, a good a good way of summing up. Um, well, it's been great talking to you, and thanks very much for coming on. And do you if is there a, do you want people to follow you? Is there a way people uh, can learn more about you, or are you going to disappear into the? I disappear into the ether. I, I'm not. Uh, you said about opinions before. I, I don't think that many people are too interested in my opinions. To be honest, I don't tweet. I don't do anything like that. I like reading other people's opinions, and I have my own. Well, there are lots of people out there on the internet who are in a similar position. And thanks very much for talking to me. And and um, yeah, I mean. These are difficult markets. They are, and thank you very much for having me on. My pleasure, and thank you, uh, dear listener or dear viewer, for watching this show or listening to this show, and I'll be back with another interview on the Flying Frisbee very soon. Please subscribe to the channel. Until then, goodbye.